Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 18. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Tetrarch of Ituria and Chaconitus, and Licinius Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of word of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping the repentance, and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they said, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't exert money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Yeah. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Uh, for those of you who are just joining us, welcome to Storefront Church. We are pleased to, to be with you, whether you're uh, a longtime person in the Christian faith or you're brand new or you're just curious or maybe your friend dragged you here, or begged you to come online. Uh, we're really glad that you're here. It wouldn't be the same without you. And so uh, thanks for being here. Um, we are in the midst of, a, of an Advent series in which we're looking um, for the first couple of, of uh, weeks at the life of John the Baptist. And if you were with us at Coffee Hour last week, then you know that the very last question at the end of Coffee Hour was an important one. It was one that Chantal asked, and she simply said, referring to last week's sermon, why was Zachariah silenced? And the question really was referring to the parents of John the Baptist, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Why was Zechariah silenced? Why, when he heard the proclamation that he and his wife Elizabeth were going to actually conceive a child, um, why, um, 
even in the midst of their old age, why did he, ex when, when he expressed incredulity at the notion that they would do so, even as very, very old people, um, why was he silenced by the angel of the Lord uh, for the duration of the pregnancy? And the simple answer to, to that was that he was receiving a gentle rebuke. He was receiving a form of judgment. Now, he wasn't receiving a form of judgment or a gentle rebuke primarily as a father or primarily as a husband. He was receiving a form of judgment as one who on that day was standing uh, as a representative figure of all of Israel. And there he was as he was praying. He received word from the Lord. He received uh, a visit from a holy being, a holy angel. And he questioned. He doubted. And based on uh, his doubt and based on his question, and based on the hardness, you might say, of his own heart, he was given a gentle rebuke. And that is, in many ways, a foreshadowing of what is to come. Because the son that they were to bear uh, was to become John the Baptist. And, you know, the irony is that John the Baptist, for the beginning of his life, for most of his life, he led a life of relative silence. You know, we don't know that much about him. Uh, but when the word of the Lord came to him, his heart was not hardened. His heart was, uh, you might say, he received the word of the Lord with his whole heart. And in so doing, he was given voice. And he, he was given a voice that did what? It was a voice that preached the coming of the Lord in judgment. That the, the Lord was going to judge the people of God and he was going to judge the world. And so it was a strong voice. It was a radical voice. It was a voice that was going out to anyone who would listen. And the central theme, you might say, of the, of the message was one of good news and bad news. He preached both good news and bad news at the exact same time. And to receive that, to sit in that, and to consider that is what Advent is all about. Now, I grew up listening, uh, watching The Godfather, and if you're familiar with The Godfather, then you know that uh, whenever you hear, when, when there's bad news and you want to hear it right away, you want to hear it immediately. And so what is the bad news? The bad news is that the Lord is coming and he's bringing justice and he's bringing judgment with him. It's a central theme of the scriptures. But the good news the good news is, is that if we receive that at the heart level, that when the Lord comes, we won't be cut down. Uh, he told, John the Baptist told all who came, uh, that in order to receive the Lord, we're not to prop up ourselves with our uh, own religiosity or our own moral performance, but because if we do that, we won't, we won't stand in the judgment. If we attempt to prop up our own religious uh, moral superiority, you might say, or our own moral goodness, we'll be cut down. So that's the bad news. But the good news is that if we come with an open heart, a heart that's not been hardened, if we come with, in a form of, uh, in a posture of repentance, the good news is, is that the Lord will receive us. That if we open, if we receive the Lord at a heart level, then we'll be rescued and we'll be able to rest in him now and then.
And so in this second week of Advent, let's hear the words of John the Baptist and let's hold these two, these two ideas together. And let's learn three things. Let's learn the certainty of judgment. Let's look for the, uh, let's uh, anticipate the feel of the acts. And let's uh, remember the promise of life. So let's uh, look, uh, discover the certainty of judgment. Let's look for the feel of the acts and the promise of life. First, the certainty of judgment. You know, in the middle passage there, we see a section, don't we? We see a section that's been set apart. It's a particular text that's been set apart. And these are verses from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Now, these are verses that are that were spoken hundreds and hundreds of years before the life of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is taking these verses, these prophetic words that are that that's saying that the that the Lord is coming and he's coming to bring judgment and he's coming to bring justice. He's, he is saying that that is happening right now. In his time and place, he's saying that's happening right now. The Lord is coming. And then he begins to describe a massive project that's taking place in order to receive the Lord. And that massive project is a kind of, you know, a construction project. And in ancient times, in order for, you know, in order for uh, kings to be, uh, to, to go out and to, uh, uh, to experience their kingdom and for the people who, with, with, with which they ruled, for them to experience them, um, because the world was such an underdeveloped world, they needed to build highways, they needed to build roads, they needed to create new pathways so that their authority could be experienced, so that their safety, uh, and so that uh, their authority could be experienced and that the people could live at peace and, and, and ideally uh, in safety. And so uh, these projects were uh, often initiated. And when those projects were initiated, of course, what did you experience? You experienced the power and the authority of the king. But as these uh, uh, projects were uh, taking place and coming under construction and as they were nearing con construction or the completion of construction, uh, you experienced great excitement, anticipation that, that the Lord, or excuse me, the king was soon to come. And so, but you not only experienced the power and the authority, uh, you experienced the anticipation, anticipation and, ex and the excitement. But these highways meant that the king was, was not only going to arrive and arrive safely, but that he was going to arrive, arrive expeditiously. He was going to arrive, certainly. And, you know, my father, many of you know that my father was in heavy construction. And so the kinds of projects that are being described here in this passage, I'm very familiar with. I grew up, in a sense, walking around projects in which literal mountains were laid low and valleys uh, were, um, were uh, raised up. And of course, there's always a reason why. Why are you doing these projects? Well, sometimes, of course, for my dad's work, it was, you know, to uh, de decrease traffic, uh, to create a dam, to link, you know, military bases together. But why are they doing this project? Why is there a heavenly um, apparatus set and tent for the king to come. And that is simply this, that the king is coming for you. He's coming because he wants you to experience him. He wants you to know him. This, this king, 
just like in ancient times, was coming to see you, to do business with you. And therefore, John is saying to all the people everywhere, in ancient times and now, are you ready? Get ready. Prepare your home. Prepare your heart. John is saying, as the last of the Old Testament prophets, this prophecy is happening right now. And so what stands out for me and what I think is relevant to us is, and what is a fairly chaotic scene, is that when John the Baptist declares that the wrath of God is coming, that the people don't ask what you and I would ask. And what, it, what is that? At which, that? What is what you and I would ask? They don't ask why. And they don't ask for whom is he coming? But they actually ask a much more insightful question. In light of God's judgment, they all ask uh, a more spiritually probing question, which is, what shall we do? What shall I do? How shall I be prepared? And he tells this to a very diverse group of people. He tells this to religious people, both Jews and Gentiles. He tells this to business people, some who are on the right side of, of the law and business and some who are not. He tells this to soldiers. He tells this to rich people and to poor people. And he, then he turns and he turns to what you might say are the normal people. And he tells them all, in order for them to be prepared for the Lord, they need to be washed. They need to be washed in a bath of repentance. And what that means is that they never look to themselves as rich or poor that they don't look to themselves uh, because they're of a particular tribe, that they're not of a particular political affiliation, that they're not business people or artists, they're not Jews or Gentiles, uh, they're not uh, those who have done good and those who have done wrong in the eyes of the world, but they recognize themselves first and foremost as a people who are bathed in repentance. They now live lives uh, as those who are a repentant people. They see themselves first and foremost as those who have been washed in repentance. And that's utterly necessary because according to the scriptures, nobody is righteous in the Lord's eyes. No, not even one. And so that's a good question for you and I, isn't it? And I think maybe that's the first step when we think of how do we begin to consider repentance? The first step you might say is, am I prepared? How can I be prepared? And in order to be prepared, or maybe the first step in experiencing what it is to be prepared is to experience and to invite and, and ask um, to be washed, to be washed. But this is an interesting passage, and it's a little bit chaotic because there's metaphors all over the place. So I'm going to jump in, in and out of metaphors. So not only... One way uh, to be prepared for the certainty of judgment, uh, not only is washing one of the ways to be prepared for that, but we also need to feel the acts. Feel the acts. Uh, of all the metaphors we see here, it's not just mountains and valleys that are affected, is it? But trees are too. And evidently part of the coming of the Lord is taking an ax to trees. But it's not just trees, it's, it's, it says that the axe is already, which means that there's a sense of urgency. It says that the axe is already at the root of the tree. 
And of course, the root of the tree is what? The root of the tree is its foundation, but it's also the means through which the tree receives life. And what that means is, as we follow the metaphor, the soil in which a tree is planted determines the quality of fruit that it bears. Now, John in this passage is so focused on behavior, isn't he? On focus on what people are doing, what they're not doing. But what we need to hear is that it's not behavior that determines your interest into the kingdom of God, but it's your behavior that indicates the soil in which one is planted. And I think we can say, based on this passage and based maybe on your own experience, that there's really three kinds of trees in the world. Uh, the first are those which are produce uh, are planted in bad, uh, excuse me, the first are those kinds of trees that produce, I'm going to start with bad news, with bad fruit. And the reason that they're, they produce bad fruit is because they're planted in what I'm going to say is soils of self-preservation. Soil of self-preservation. When we are planted in soil of self-preservation, we will in, inherently, inevitably, produce fruit that mimics and mirrors that very soil, will produce selfish lives. And we see this here. Look, we have religious people, tax collectors, soldiers, all people in power, all taking advantage of the power that has been given to them. You know, re the religious people of this time, they're supposed to be in some sense gardeners. They're supposed to be in some sense shepherds and mediators, but what does he call them? He calls them vipers. And we can know just at surface level something about vipers and vipers, which are, you know, asps, which are snakes. Whenever you're around a snake, I will say if you're, if you're sane, because I don't like snakes, there's very few things I don't like, I don't like snakes. Uh, but when snakes are around, uh, for most people, it makes them nervous. It puts them on edge. And one of the reasons he calls them vipers is because despite the fact that they are meant to be gardeners and spiritual nurturers in the community, in their presence, other people are nervous. Other people are scared. Why? Because they had the form of religion, but they didn't have the heart of good religion. Because they had the form, the outward show of what it was to be spiritual, but inside they were poisonous. Inside the ways, the ways that they loved people, the ways that they led people, actually led people away from God, not to God. Because their lives, even as religious people, tragically, were planted in the soil of self-preservation, the fruit that they bore was selfish self-serving was poison to those around them and of course you see that there were tax collectors here and for those of you uh, who are not familiar with that term you know tax collectors were not just auditors they were not just people who worked for the irs but they were people who collected uh, the taxes and tariffs for the roman empire but they were jews and be, with the uh you might say the muscle of the Roman Empire behind them, they didn't just collect the taxes that they were supposed to collect, the legal tax, but they collected the taxes uh, in a way that they saw fit. 
So tax collectors were notoriously corrupt. They were like the mob. And so not just the religious people that uh, are being uh, challenged here, but it's, it's these tax collectors and the soldiers that are, are all sensing a need to repent. They're sensing a need to respond to uh, John the Baptist. They're sensing a need to respond to the certainty of the Lord. And of course, John says that um, when they say, what should we do to prepare? He's saying, repent by doing the most obvious things. Stop extorting money. See, each of these groups were in positions of power, yet abusing that power was second nature to them. They either overlooked it or they justified it. Um, though the corruption, you might say, didn't begin with them, though they in, maybe inherited this corruption, it certainly didn't end with them. And I would imagine that as they came to, to John the Baptist and they said, what must we do? How do we prepare? The last thing they were thinking was the most obvious things. Stop extorting people. Stop abusing your power. Stop being selfish. See, these trees were embedded. They were rooted deep down into the soil of self-preservation. Now you and I are watching this and we're thinking, well, I'm, I'm none of those things. I'm a pastor, I'm a religious person. So that actually hits home. But maybe you're looking at this and you're saying, well, I'm not, you know, a Pharisee. Um, I'm not a criminal. I'm not, I don't work for the mob. I'm not a soldier who, who is extorting people too and, and abusing my power. But, you know, John turns to the normal people because they think that he's actually the Messiah, which is incorrect. But maybe it's a step in the right direction. Maybe it's a sign that they're, they're a little bit more open. So he's turning to people, you know, like you. But he doesn't say, don't worry. It's them that are the problem. <clears throat> now he goes into further detail and further description about how everybody, all of us, need to be prepared for the coming of the Lord and the judgment he's going to bring and the justice that he's going to exact. And so... When we think about it, we need to be able to, to think about trees in three different ways. Some trees are planted in bad soil, the soil of self-preservation. But before we talk about the, the good trees that are bearing good fruit because they're, they're planted in good soil, let's talk about the obvious at this season. Let's talk about Christmas trees. You know, there's nothing uh, that is a greater symbol, you might say, of of uh, the emptiness of a life that's not deeply connected to the love of God than a Christmas tree. There's nothing, uh, there's no greater metaphor uh, for the human experience that, um, than, than a tree, than a Christmas tree. Why? Because the, the human is one who is born to reflect uh, the glory of God, right? But it reflects the glory of God by what? By having its its roots embedded into the sacrificial love of God. But a Christmas tree is one that's just been cut off at the root, right? And therefore, there's no life in the tree at all. It's dying. And every day that we have our Christmas tree, we're always doing what? We're always spritzing it. We're always adding water to it because we know in short, in short time, that tree is going to 
get crisp. That tree is going to go brown. That tree is going to become a fire hazard. But Christmas trees, we love them so much. Why? Because we fill them with ornaments that reflect back to us the things that we love, that make us, that blind us, you might say, to the reality that that tree is dying. And yet we fill it with the things of, that make us warm and cheery. It's a staggering metaphor, right? That in our culture, we may be cut off from the real life of God, that the real promise that God gives us and promises us, that we may be disconnected from his love. We may be disconnected from his word. We may be disconnected from his people. We may be disconnected from the promises of the gospel. And yet we, or, we fill our lives with ornamentation, with certain clothes or certain cars or certain people to hang out with or certain things that we've done at work or in our relationships. And we pretend that we're actually alive inside when the reality is, is that we're dying. And we just want people to see the ways that we've decorated ourselves. So I don't mean to take away the joy of your Christmas tree. We're going to go get a tree today. <laughs> I look forward to decorating that tree, but it is a healthy image for us to consider as we consider the promise of life that the gospel offers. And that is, is that when, when God takes the, the ax to the root of the tree, the promise of the gospel is that he cuts it in order to replant it into the life-giving soil of his love. See, the miracle of, of, of the Lord is that he's not just a king with power and authority, but he's also a gardener that has the ability to connect his life-giving power uh, to you and I. You know, in John 15, Jesus says this. He says, I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You already are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. And the promise of the gospel is that when we're replanted, in the soil of God's sacrificial love, that his life-giving power, his presence, his, uh, uh, his pulsating love enters into us. And we begin to produce a whole different kind of fruit that you and I, uh, whether we're religious people, whether we're hitmen for the mob, whether we are <clears throat> just the normal types, we begin to produce a kind of fruit that is otherworldly. We begin, begin to, to produce a kind of fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-discipline, even when it costs us. Why do we do that? Because our, the, the soil is not one of self-preservation, but the soil in which we're living out of, that we're, we're um, abiding in, that's remaining in us is one of God's sacrificial love. It's a beautiful image. It's a costly image. It's a painful image. 
remember, look what Jesus says. He says, um, he cuts off every branch that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. And the pruning process, as a Christian, is often uncomfortable. You know, that means to be cut back. It means that God may cut things out of your life. He may cut relationships out of your life. He may cut habits out of your life. He may cut sources of identity out of your life so that you're laid bare before him, so that you're stripped of ornamentation, if you will, or at least the kind of ornamentation that doesn't point to the true life of God. And that's a painful process. But of course, you don't go through it alone. See, because when you're a Christian, when your tree, you might say, is replanted in the soil of God's sacrificial love, that same soil is feeding and abiding in trees all around you. You're in a forest. You have fellowship. You don't do it alone. You don't do it alone. And so he promises to remain in you. Insofar as you and I abide in him. But Christ, um, but Jesus Christ uh, promises also, uh, excuse me, Jesus Jesus Christ promises um, that we won't have to be cut down. That will just be cut back when the judgment comes. And in order for him to do that, of course, Jesus Christ had to do, had to actually be cut off. That the 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 acts you might say came to him. And I think you know I'm going to switch metaphors here to show the the kind of love and commitment that God has for you. That Jesus Christ, though you and I will die, Jesus Christ says, "I will die with you." That God says, yes, the judgment is coming and justice is coming, but I'm not going to leave you to stand in it alone. In fact, I'm going to come and I am going to experience a great rebuke that you deserve, that I deserve, so that you can receive just a gentle one. And Jesus Christ on the cross was silenced, wasn't he? as a representative figure, not just of Israel, but all of mankind, he was cut off. The ax came to the root so that he didn't even experience the love of God. And he did that so that we can experience the love of God. That's the beauty and the hope and the, and the, um, and the thing which we anticipate most at Christmas, that he actually is coming and he's coming in Jesus Not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. This tiny child comes gently so that he can go to the cross and receive the true rebuke that you and I deserve. So he can receive judgment. You know, I was been doing some Advent reading, and I'll just close with this. And I was reminded of a story that I had heard. a 9-11 story that I'd heard. And this story took place in one of the, in one of the towers, I think it was the North Tower, at one, in one of the high floors. And there was a group of people and they were trapped. And of course, I wanna be really sensitive because we're New Yorkers and this is not a fiction to us and it's not a myth, but it's our neighborhood. And so there were a group of, of uh, people on a high floor and some of them were 
hurt and all of them were confused and some of them were even dead. And they were, they were talking on a cell phone and you know, sort of at the height of their chaos, they, they saw the fire marshal and a police captain come bursting or running up the stairs. And you could hear in the voice, the incredible joy, the relief that people of authority were there to come and save them. But of course, the tragedy of that moment was, though you heard this great, you know, all this joy, it was really the last thing that was heard because they all died. All of them died. Both those who were in need of help and those who were bringing hope and authority. And that really is a picture of the gospel. Um, you know, we're all gonna, we all face death every day. And we don't know when it's actually gonna come. And death is a form of God's judgment. It's part of this curse that we have accrued because we've chosen to become our own gods. And in that metaphor, all of those people were crushed, were they not? Death came upon them. But the beauty of the gospel is just like that police chief, just like that fire marshal, the authority dies with you, brings hope and says, I'm gonna go down with you. And that's, the, that's something for us to reflect on this season. You know, what soil are we planted in? We're in, planting in, in the soil of self-preservation or in the soil of sacrificial love, like those, those, that fire marshal and that police captain. And how do we live in light of that? You know, as storefront church, we're waiting to, we're waiting to sign a lease. We're, str we're struggling to sign a lease. We're, you know, we're, we're in talks to sign a lease. But what we must not do is withhold this sort of uh, storefront vision until we sign a lease. We need to move forward with a storefront mentality. And of course, part of that mentality is that we, we long to have radical access with the people in this neighborhood so that we are not living out of soil of self-preservation, but we're living out of the soil of sacrificial love so that we are in word and in deed making the gospel and our own lives accessible for people. So that when they look at religious people, they don't say those vipers. They say, that is a gardener who's nurturing not only this community, but my life. He's helping to put out fires all around this neighborhood he or she, that they are a source of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, not just for me, but for those around. And when I see those people, they, they, though I don't believe what they believe, they celebrate me because I'm created in the image of their God. And therefore, before they have a spark of criticism about my life, there's hundreds and hundreds of things that they lift up and champion and honor and seek to serve and help me and care for me. And they also recognize that, that God is at work in this neighborhood and people other than just them. And so they look to partner with others and be a part of a fabric, you might say, or a forest of the love of God because they're not planted in the soil of 
self-preservation, but we judge them by their fruit because they're planted in the soil of God's sacrificial love. Let Advent in our lives be about holding these things together. The, the glory of the Lord is coming. Are we prepared? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, on the one hand, I'm so thankful that you're coming. And on the other hand, we always ask ourselves, but am I prepared? What soil am I planted in? And I pray, Lord, for this community that we would have open dialogue to say, I see your life. I see it up close. And I see the kind of fruit that you're bearing. Lord, I pray that we would uh, encourage each other, that we would exhort each other, we'd spur each other on to love and good works so that we might be a, a source of life uh, to the people around us. And I pray that all this in Jesus' name. Amen.